Hello and welcome to the AdNug podcast, the podcast for Adelaide.net user group. I'm your host, David Gardner. This is a recording from our March 2017 meeting. Ben Lahn speaks about how to do performance testing with Visual Studio Load and web test tools. And now, over to the presentation. Today I'm going to give a talk about uh, a tool that you'll find in uh, Visual Studio. You've probably ignored it. I know I did for many years. It's uh, tucked away under test in the uh, new projects group. It's called uh, Web Performance and Load Test Project. It's uh, not the most glamorous thing, so uh, we're using it internally, so I've got to learn about it, and I thought I would share that experience today. So about me, my name's Ben Lan. I'm the application architect at Eka. Eka is a uh, company been in South Australia for about 20 years. We build uh, bulk handling solutions for the commodity industry. Uh, got a couple of guys here today in the blue shirts. Um, so if you're interested in bulk commodity handling software, just go talk to them. Okay. Um, I've been doing this for a long time, 20 years, and uh, as it says up there, 31 years in total. That's right, I, uh, I'm older than I look. Um, yeah, so... Look, the thing about, uh, the first thing you need to know about the load pr test project is that you only get it if you have uh, premium or enterprise. So uh, if that's not you, sorry, there's a list of uh, open source and free uh, alternatives at the end. But, you know, being a Microsoft product, uh, they, they want to give you the value add. Otherwise, really, why, are any, why is anyone buying the uh, high-end products? But uh, it's, it's pretty good, but as I've gotten to note there, it's not perfect, there are some issues. You can see that they've taken this product only so far, and they've just decided that that'll do. Um, there has not been any fixes, any realistically any real work done since it's been released. It's pretty stable, and, and actually when it's working, it works quite well, but the UI side of it can be a bit clunky, so uh, I'll try and hide that from you, but as I, if, if you can even see it actually, uh, you may see some annoyances in the UI. So, um, so what is uh, web test and load test? Well, I thought I'd bring up the testing pyramid just to get us started. I'm sure you're all familiar with the idea of a uh, testing pyramid, but essentially you layer uh, your tests in such a way that the bulk of your tests are unit tests, and then there'll be less uh, and less as you go up the stack. Uh, of different uh, integration tests, system tests, and then finally manual tests. And the idea there is, of course, um, the higher up the stack it is, the more expensive, the more slow it is, and you want to avoid doing that for the bulk of your testing. But practically speaking, you can't avoid it. You do need to actually see all your parts come together. Uh, this is a system test, essentially, because we're not running the whole stack. We are just running the network talking to, from the network layer talking to the, uh, the server. So you should imagine this representing a headless browser. It's just issuing HTTP requests. Um, and so we, we're running the whole of the server, but none of the client. Okay, so we, this is quite important. We're not testing your JavaScript performance, your your uh, time to DOM ready in the, in the client itself. You really are only talking about when you issue some number of requests, how long those take to round trip back to the client. And uh, that's actually quite a good thing because sometimes you've got bugs in your JavaScript or you know, if you're using a slow old version of IE uh, in particular, you could find that a lot of your 
performance problems are in that half. So this is not going to this tool is not going to fix those problems. And in fact, if you did need performance problem fixing on the client side, there's a different set of tools for that. Something like Yslow by uh, Yahoo and um, there's others. There's lots of those for uh, uh, checking the efficiency of your actual client code. Um, but they are end-to-end tests from the service perspective. They are sucking in a, a HTTP request, hitting a, some control architecture, going to your database, all your standard processing. So it's quite a good way of testing that everything just works. So a web test, in essence, is all of the back end, if you want to call it that, and uh, it's it's designed to allow you to um, do many many types of testing that would be quite onerous to do manually, such as uh, is my server running is a good one. You know, like you could you could literally run this um, after a deployment and just say, you know, does the page actually return a 200? How long does that take to return a 200? So there's lots of options about um, of uh, what you can do with this, but the way it works fundamentally is you define a web test as a set of requests and you you specify expectations on those requests such as you know it's going to come back in two seconds or the response is going to do a redirect or the redirect is going to have a certain shape you can you can state at the request level what you're expecting there's a, a large number of hooks that Microsoft provided in them it's not perfect, but the plugin architecture they've got there is quite powerful. You can um, you can write your own validation hooks and your own uh, um, extraction hooks, so you can pull out part of the, re the response so that you can store it and then pass to the next part of the request. There's a series of uh, of tools to provide that there. Um, the other thing about a web test, and I'll, I'll just allude to it here, is that the web test is the building blocks of load tests. The load test is essentially trying to run a lot of web tests. So whenever you're thinking about what is a web test, you should think about it as, as a small fragment of a larger picture, which is the load test. And the last thing that's interesting to note is that the web test file format is actually something that the Azure app service supports. So if you have an app running in Azure, and you want to define a web test for it, you can actually push that web test file up to the cloud and then it will execute it against the live backend in the Azure cloud and generate the same result sets that you're going to see here. So um, I might just show you that because it's, yeah, calm down. Let me just turn this on. So this is a, Adelaide free, it always steals my uh, current Wi-Fi and it never works. It's brilliant. Okay. So I'm just loading up the Azure platform here. I just want to show you this quickly. It's quite cool. Uh, you can imagine that if I was writing a web test to talk to the server, Just picked up this one that I've got my own personal project. Can you see that alright or is it all just white? Yeah, okay.
So there's a feature down here under tools, it's quite cool, called uh, performance test. And I'll select that. Uh, run TV's faster at home, I must admit. And I'll add one in here and change that to a Visual Studio web test. Pick the file. I'll just load this one here. It's not very interesting. And you can see there that's just hitting a couple of URLs, but we hit done on that. This won't work, obviously, because uh, the Azure server does not know about local host, but if you actually had put up a genuine server, this would run. So it's quite a good way if you wanted to um, test this part of CI integration, it would be quite useful. And you see there I can just say pretend it's 250 users doing this for five minutes. I'm not going to get run because it's just not going to work, but I think that's very powerful and uh, I think there's a lot of potential here if you, if you were running a public facing server. Yes? No, you don't actually. Uh, if you can generate the web test file, you can run it up there. And in fact, it's just an XML file. You could, in theory, manage it yourself, especially if you already had the file and you were just modifying it. That would work just fine. Okay. Okay, so what are the main reasons to be thinking about writing web tests? Well, the main one is, I think, the sanity check you write a web test so that you as a developer don't need to load up your application and click through it every time you make a change. We all know that that's boring and if we don't have to do it, that's good. And maybe you don't do it as much as you should because, well, it's boring. Um, I know that uh, if the tool can do it, it's just going to be more efficient, more reliable. And if you do this on day one, you have a web, you write a new web application, and for every screen or function, you write a web test. It'd be quite an efficient way of exercising the application instead of hitting F5 and waiting around, clicking through five screens to get somewhere. You can literally script that out, and uh, that will work quite nicely. So, unfortunately, we had a, a fully featured application at the time, so that was an option. But I do think that it would be a good uh, use case in general. The other thing you can do with it is you can test the functional side of the system and I don't really do this because I write unit tests and integration tests but you can actually get it to validate the results based on various inputs so you could actually have quite elaborate tests. You know, if a certain user with a certain combination of inputs does this then we expect the output to be a warning or some error condition. Look, I wouldn't advocate for that but if, that was, if you didn't write unit tests or you code was too hard to write unit tests for. There's a lot of capability in the tool to actually write uh, real validations and, um, and test your application. Of course, you can only test what you can see in the DOM, so it's pretty limited, but if you've got a way to say, I'm looking at the fourth row in the grid and the fifth column and there has to be a 12, you can do that in this tooling. Uh, like I said, I wouldn't recommend it. It's, there's better ways, even if you, uh, you know, if you can write unit tests or integration tests. And the last one is, that, well, the next one is, uh, if you want to measure the performance of an individual page, then web tests can be quite useful. For example, how long does it take this page to load up? We've decided it has to be two seconds. And this is a, a one user, no concurrent load scenario. Um, you know, it might be that you've got a personal opinion about that, or you've got an SLA on that, it's hard to say, but you can make that part of your web test and say you must 
finished within a few seconds. So it's quite good for giving you that confidence that something silly hasn't happened, uh, like maybe you're querying the whole of the table at the startup by mistake. So I think that's quite useful. You can also use it, I mentioned earlier, as part of your CI. If you do have a continuous integration, continuous deployment model, once you push it up there, you can just do a sanding check to make sure that it actually loads up. You know, you just hit the home page or maybe a couple of landing pages just here and there just to make sure, yes, the server is running and we got back the data we wanted. I think that's quite a useful test case, a scenario, and um, that's probably a lot better than just giving it to you know, your QA department and just let them just click around for five minutes. So you, you can't validate that quite so uh, concretely. And last time I mentioned here is that the last one is that it's scriptable, so you can you can do it from the command line yourself. So you can just run the MS test executable and just pass it the web test and just run the whole lot. And that's quite a lightweight way of doing it. You don't have to interact with the UI. You just run it. I do believe, sort of similar to the question I asked before, you do need to have the right version of uh, MS test and that which comes with the premium and ultimate. But if you do have that, then uh, it's quite nice. You can literally make that part of your build step you know, on, your, on your own box, especially if you were just compiling to IS, so it's always resident, and then just run the script and let it hit all the sites. So the question is, how do you write these things? What is, what's the way to get a web test written? Well, there's, there's several ways. The first one is you, you can use an IE uh, snapping or adding. I've never had this work, but I've seen it work for others. And basically, it's a plugin into IE that uh, Visual Studio talks to that records your actions, you know, where you click and uh, what you type and things like that. Um, I'm sure it works wonderfully for some, but I've, I've literally never seen it work on my box or any boxes. Uh, but luckily, there's a much better way, and it's the way I like, and I'll show you this way when I do the demo, and that's you use Fiddler. So is everyone here familiar with Fiddler? I assume so, if you do any network. Okay, so just for those who don't know, Fiddler is a HTTP trace. So it's a way of profiling the traffic that goes through the network driver. And uh, it's basically, you can turn it on for the entire box and you'll just see it just, you, you realize how much your computer talks to the internet, or you can just add a filter for the server that you're running and um, it's quite useful. Now, unlike some, a tool like Wireshark, which is really turning at the protocol level, uh, this is focused around HTTP, so it's quite clean. You can see requests, you can see responses, and you can even rerun them or uh, parameterize them. It's very powerful. Uh, the Fiddler uh, tooling is uh, free. Uh, I suppose the best word for it is by uh, Telerik. Um, it used to be an open source tool, and I think Telerik sponsor it now. They, uh, they looked after it. The last way is manual creation. It is just an XML file. It also has a UI. It's after all, it's Visual Studio. Um, but the problem with that is that it's just, a, it's just a tree, and every time you click on a node, you get a property grid on the side, and there's about 40 options. And it can be a little bit, uh, a little bit tedious to write it. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever going to do that, but you could. So. I think the Fiddler way works really well. I'll demo that. It's quite clean. It takes a couple of uh, steps and it's all done. And then you can you can then tweak it, which you normally would do through the user interface. The 
most important components of web testing. Uh, I've listed them here, and um, I doubt you can read that text. Let me just check. No, you definitely can't. You don't need to. If you are interested, you can get that PowerPoint later. But basically, there's three types of plugins, extractors, validators, and general purpose plugins. An extractor uh, is a hook whereby you can process the response of the request and take out whatever you need. That might be headers, it might be, um, it might be some text node in the DOM, it could be anything, some JSON, doesn't really matter. As long as you, you can either use the ones they've got in there or you can write your own. They don't actually have a lot of modern things in there. It's really built around hidden inputs and text nodes. If you want to do JSON or XML or something off the beaten track, you'll have to write it yourself. I find that you end up writing regex, you know, straight away, uh, if you don't want to do one of the basic things. The only validators I've ever wanted to write were things where we knew that doing a certain post should result in uh, some sort of warning banner appearing. We want to just make, make that be an expectation on the test. So you, you can write those validators to do that. Um, so you can say, I either expect this div to have this class or something like that, or whatever you need to do. Uh, and they're really very specific. They've got some built-in ones, and uh, they, they only go so far. But luckily, the model is built around plugins. You can just inherit from their base write your own, bring it in and use it, and uh, that's not too bad. And then for everything else, you write a custom plugin where you can literally get involved in the life cycle of the web test from uh, preload to pre-request, post-request, post-load, etc., and do whatever you need to do. Uh, there's really no guidance on that. You just It's up to you to try and solve your problem the best you can. We've had to do horrible things to make this solve certain problems. So I won't go into that because it's quite specific to your scenario. And you, you, um, you, if I showed you ours, and I can, I've got some code I could show you, it won't make any sense because it's very specific to that page and that issue that we have today. Okay, so now what I'm going to do is uh, attempt to show you all this. So what I did is I started up a new MVC4 application. I've done nothing except in F5. It's, it's as good as it gets. And if you've ever looked at it, I'm sure you have, there's a register page. And this is the, um, the only thing that I'm going to be web testing today. And I'm not even going to do any assertions on it. I just want to show you that to get this to work, obviously I've got to fill in this here. Now it took me a while to get this to work because there's, there's a rather uh, annoying regex on the password. So imagine if you're using that uh, browser plugin where it's recording your steps, you would end up with a lot of false starts because you, you do it at posts, it fails, you do it at posts. So uh, we're not going to do any of that. I'm just going to, uh, I know what the real data is now, and I'll show you how that works. So what I'm going to do is open up Hitler. I'll just clear this. And most important thing to show you is you see here I've got a filter on the local host. Probably a bit big. Okay. So if you don't have that, there it is there. If you don't have that, Fiddler will have millions of records in here very quickly. So I'll just uh, hit F12. Okay, so we're now capturing. I'll come over here. And I'll type in 
stuff. Hopefully I get this right. I'm not confident. Okay, so there we go, and we get some error. Now the reason we got that is obviously because I did this before. Doesn't really matter, but um, I'll show you what Piddler does. You can see the only action that the network is detecting here is the post, and we can see um, in the inspector that over here, oops, excuse me, we're posting to that, we're posting um, these fields. Uh, quite difficult. But uh, we'll just go to the headers and the Sorry. Uh, oh, that's why. Okay. So what's showing me here is actually the the response, which is not really what I wanted. I really want to see the, the content. And we see, yeah. So that's the response, which is good. More. But anyway, it has done a post. Uh, and uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll clear that because I really do need it to do the redirect for the purpose of the demo. So I'll just put this on again. So I've got that and then I've got to redirect. Now it's pretty boring, but um, in fact, got a step. And the first step is we really do want to record the actual get. So that's, that's my mistake. So let me just uh, do that. Should take this code out. So there we have the work, and you see here um, we started with a get. I think you can see that over there. Is that possible to see? It's a get. And then um, we get the post, and then the next post, and then the get. That's essentially the redirect. So Clearly we know that there was the extra step in here I don't want, so I'm going to hit delete on that. And I'm going to grab this text here, uh, select all, and I'm going to export this. And I'll export it to the Visual Studio web test format. And I'll just put that there, don't do. Okay. Um, turns out if you keep all these checkboxes on, you'll get a format that uh, Visual Studio is expecting. If you turn off any of these, you get some variation on that. And I'm, particularly around filter redirects, it's quite important to keep that there. But I've found that all of them on is good, everything else is not good. So now that that's done, um, what we can do is load that up in Visual Studio. And Exactly right. It is exactly right. Now, the only downside to that whole process is that it's hard coded. So, 
if you go through the rest of this these steps using text editor, you can bypass this. So um, yeah, the only thing you're really getting with premium is the editor experience. And the, well, the, the inputs to those forms. Okay, so it, for some tests that's probably fine, but probably not. Um, so here you go, you can see we've got um, the first request. There it is there. Now, you probably can't see this, but um, we've got two requests, the, the, the get and the, the post. Okay, and it's worth pointing out that you're not going to see it, but every time I select the node here on the left, the properties window comes up with a lot of context. And so what I'm thinking I might do is keep them together so that if I zoom, it might be a bit more easy to see, but is that right? Okay. You can see that's a get there. And uh, if you look at the post, what we've got here is all hard-coded values. So you could imagine if you saw the XML, it's going to be pretty straightforward. It's just a it's just a graph, contains all the values. Uh, obviously, it's plain text, passwords, so probably not the most secure system on earth. Um, but you get the idea. And uh, now, if I run this test, which I will do because the server's running, there you go. Hmm. I said before that. Uh, there's some problems with this. It's like there's a polishing, a polish that's just missing, and it always is the same problem. Every now and again, you get random errors in COM due to Visual Studio, and uh, sadly, the only way to fix it is to restart it. I know it happens all the time. And look, uh, Sean's here somewhere. I can't see there he is. He's uh, working with this project as much as I am. And how many times do you restart it a week? There you go. So it's a bit annoying, but I mean, look, I've been using Visual Studio for a long time, and from memory, we've always had to restart constantly, so nothing's changed there, right? Um, so it's a bit frustrating, I must admit, but uh, the runtime, when this is all working, runs really nicely. So it's really just the UI and the fact that Visual Studio is under the covers is all com, and com's got problems. So we can, we can ignore them. Well, that's not good. This is actually not the project that I wanted. And I there it is. Better. So the imported file, so what I've done is I've actually collected them all on the side here just so that in case something goes wrong. But I'm going to run this. As long as we don't get that com error, uh, what we're going to see is it's going to attempt, it's going to attempt to run the test. Okay. Oh. 
maybe a good idea to actually start the server. And this is an annoying feature uh, that I don't know why they've done this, but I've just started, I've got this solution with the web test project and the web application. This would be a common idea. I can't actually run that web test while I'm debugging the app, which seems pretty bizarre to me. Like, to me, this would be a core scenario. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to detach the instance. So you, you, realistically, you'd have to run a separate Visual Studio instance. Not the end of the world, but it does seem a bit weird, doesn't it? Um, okay. So at least I know it's running now, so I'll run it up. And uh, here it goes. So taking into account here that it's warming up the server. Turns out that the zipper program doesn't refresh. But as you can see, I've got an error here. Now I knew I was going to get an error here, and that's because, to have a look at it, but you see the text says the anti-forgery token cannot be decrypted. And here's the first problem. And you would encounter this straight away, so I thought I'd put this in here. So what's going on? Well, if we look at the web test, and uh, open it up, the post, You've seen that we are passing in the request verification token, which is pretty much standard MVC. We're pushing in this token for uh, preventing uh, cross-site forgery requests, uh, hacking, attacking. And so we need to get that value. So where is that value? Well, the answer is the value is in the response to the request itself. So if you see the first, when we issue the request, the form comes down, it will include that tag, so we have to extract that and then send it back with the with the post. So that's the first problem, and this is a good example of the sorts of things you deal with when you're dealing with web tests. So how do we do that? Well, the first thing you need to do is add a variable. So as an aside, the variable system in web tests is scope-based, so you, you declare a web so you declare a context parameter on the top level, and then any child requests will inherit those, and they can modify them, and that can be, that's a recursive pattern. But for the most part, we can just um, we can just type it in ourselves. So you probably can't see that, but I'm just going to give it a name like anti-forgery. Doesn't really matter. And now what I want to do is, as part of this Quest. I'm going to add an extraction role. So, sorry about the uh, UI. But in the add extraction role, it says here I can pick lots of options. It's quite good. Like this is what they give you for free. But as you can see, it's just form fields, headers, things like that. And uh, from memory, I think the anti-forgery token is a input. Like that, and then you're, I'm going to tell it to write that into anti-forgery, like that. So what all I'm doing is saying when you do the extract, you've got to write that variable there, and then of course I have to tell it what the field is to extract. Now I don't remember that, so um, the way we look at that is uh, we ran the test, 
So I'm just going to flip back to the test itself. Here it is, and look at the response. And we scroll down into the response. And there it is there. You can see there is a input name, oops, excuse me, request verification token. And that's the thing that I need to pick out. So instead of making you watch me type, uh, here's one I prepared earlier. In, uh, that's this context parameters version. So it's exactly the same I've declared. Sorry, fixing forgery here. Um, I've now got form post. Extraction rules, oh, I've got that there, good. So you can see here what I've said is, as part of the processing of the request, you want to pull out, extract a uh, form field and put it into the variable anti-forgery token. And then subsequently, when doing the post, assign that variable into the request verification token form field. So this is very common. Um, without that, it's just not going to work, and then that will then work. The other part of this is, uh, obviously, you saw me type in my name and password. Well, you can do that with context parameters. So, actually, I'll just uh, open that up again. You can see here I've just declared some variables and I'm passing them in instead. And so that is a very simple strategy, and that works quite well. Um, and you can imagine for a really basic scenario, we might be just um, logging into a screen like I'm doing here. This will work quite well. Mind you, logging in does have a better mechanism than this, but as an example, you can do that. And then that will work. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to run this anti-forgery one. And uh, this should work. And there you go. And that's quite quick now. Um, 200. Okay, we'll go to 200. So one thing that's worth showing you is when, when you do the work here on this initial request, it shows you all the child requests. We don't have to capture them. And in fact, remember all those checkboxes in Fiddler uh, at the start? Those checkboxes tell the web test to treat all those secondary requests as part of this request so they're sort of ignored. Otherwise, you end up with a large amount of requests you don't care about, some you know, CSS file or... JavaScript file. So it does a good job of hiding all those irrelevant aspects. And now that works. And of course, the only problem is now I've got actual error because, as you can see, uh, I'm already a member in this database. And that's really the what I think the biggest problem with the web test in general is you need good data, you need fresh data. And so how do you get it? You might think, well, we could just have a web test for every scenario and then clear the database at the start of the test cycle. That will work or you could uh, feed it some data from a data source. So that's what I want to show next. Uh, I've got a CSV here. See that around? It's not nice, it's just a simple CSV. And so you could imagine for your real world forms, you might have a large amount of data you want to test for. You've got a CSV, all you need to do is define a data source and pointed at that CSV, so I'm going to pretend this is first time, I'll just say new data source, type CSV, we point at the database, which will be quite useful, issue a query, get some data that way, 
or XML if you're so inclined. And then there it is, it just shows you that, and it's really nothing more to it. But then how do you use it? Well, take for example this post. Um, it's slightly different font syntax to what we saw before. We now refer to that field in the data source like that. And that's really it. Now, I could show you this in the UI, but it's really clunky because you have to go through a property screen and a drop down and another little dialog thing. Those parts I find annoying. I think over time, both Sean and I have been using the XML directly because you sort of get used to it and um, it's a bit more tidy. So if I run this now, uh, you saw I think I had four um, rows in that CSV. What we're expecting is to get four tests. So I'm going to run this here and see what happens. And it's passed, but we've only got one test. So what's all that about? Well, what's the point of having rows if it doesn't do that. So what I want to show you is the local test settings file over here. This is not clear at all. I can tell you right now that this is one of these obscurities that uh, this file is not just used for web tests. It's actually used for all of Microsoft's MS test architecture. So if you're using test controllers, test agents, any of that, this file is your friend. And uh, this, so if I open that up, I'll have a look at it. There is a At the bottom there it says web test, that's the guy we want, and all that does is there's an option here, and I'll just zoom a bit, that says fix run count of one or n, and then there's the other option run one run per data source. Well, I don't know when you wouldn't want that if you supplied a data source, but you know, I can change that and that will work just fine, so I'll do that. Now, before I hit apply to that, has anyone ever used MS tests before and the test agents, test controllers, and all that architecture around that? Um, this fits in with that. You can make your test agents run web tests, and they can actually all hit the server concurrently and act in a swarm. There's so much overhead to configure it, but if you get that right, it's great. Uh, we we haven't quite got there yet. It's um, yeah, it's a bit of a problem, but uh, it does work, it's just uh, you, you've got a lot of issues, especially if you're dealing with separate domains and all these standard networking things, because each of these agents is running in a limited context. It's going to be quite painful. But I'll change that. One thing I should point out, I've only got one test settings file, but in practice you probably have one for your local machine, and one for your test environment, like say you have a test agent, maybe a different one for the one you push to the Azure Cloud. Um, and then if you right click on this file, you will see there's a check, a little tick next to it. Well, Visual Studio does not remember that tick. So quite often, if you've got multiple files, it'll just pick one. And obviously, when you come in here to run it, you might probably forget and uh, to check it. And it can try and run it on any remote server and get some frustrating error messages. I'll run it again. Hopefully this will do the right thing. I'll run this one again. It looks like it was rerunning the old one. There we go. So now we've got multiple requests and responses. So that's worked quite well. So uh, there's 
three, four, four runs in there. So it's probably hard to see just because I've gone to the dark scheme and uh, there's some UI glitches. But while we're here, I'll just show you quickly. It's quite interesting what you get. We can select any request and have a look at its request headers, um, form post values, the response headers, body, etc. So in terms of diagnostics, you've got quite a lot of power here. And the context as well, um, not only can you declare your own variables like password and username, which are put down the bottom here, and the data source values here, but all the existing uh, infrastructure ver context variables are exposed here as well. So you've got a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, you, you can really find out how it's running. So it's quite powerful. And a lot of the plugins will involve manipulating these context and, and poking at it. Uh, so it, it really is a good tool. And then um, if you if you have any validation rules or any uh, custom plugins that assert, make assertions, they will appear in this rules chart here. So that would, could be where you're actually doing your standard testing, where you're actually validating the, the system. Uh, probably the last thing to show you is this, this idea when you're declaring a, a, a web test of the manual test. Now, I open up a blank one. You really are just left with a, a very boring screen. Here. But you can do add request and then type in all the bits and set all the properties, etc. And like I said, you wouldn't want to do this. This would just take you forever. You could, and um, I would never recommend it. But what is powerful here, and something we're doing in complex tests, is if you have a multi-stage test scenario, for example, you in insert an order into a screen, and then once the order is saved, you go to some detail screen. It's probably going to be necessary that the detail screen only runs after the order screen, and they share an order number. And all that can be done in here using um, uh, essentially child web requests. So I can call here add call to web test, and I can just call another one. So this is saying test zero will do some work. It'll hit that URL, and then it's going to call the other one. And this is quite powerful because you can actually combine them, and then you, these are essentially procedures. You, if you think about this as a scripting environment, there really is global variables with some scope and then uh, procedures where you can call out. So it's quite powerful, and this allows you, for example, if I declare in the outer context, I can add a parameter called water ID, and then in the, let's say, this post, I can extract that, write that into the order ID, and then in this uh, web test, we can actually redirect to that URL, for example, um, and that will pick up that context because it's in the same, it's in a child scope. That those, I was going to show you that, but it's quite elaborate because once again, you've really got to be thinking about your own business context and how that uh, is appropriate, but it does allow for some really involved tests. So we've got some multi-stage, three-stage tests like this. It works quite well. Uh, if you don't do that, you're forced to prepare your data in advance. Like you might have a, an order detail test that relies on a hard-coded order, something like that. I, I don't think that's a good idea. So I think this works better. It is a little bit, uh, it is a little bit uh, problematic just because it is essentially global variable programming and uh, string-based as well. 
One thing I can show you just before I move off of this is what does this XML look like if you did want to manage it yourself? Because one thing we found was once you pulled them into Fiddler, you've got all these hard-coded and you've got all these hard-coded values. It just wasn't practical to go in and use this UI to click in every field and select the value. So we use PowerShell to manipulate this. And because it's just XML, it's quite, quite plausible. So what you see here, can you see this all right? Is the, the resolution not too bad? I'll make that a bit bigger. So you can see here, it is just a, it's, it pretty much mirrors the UI that they've given you. It's a, a, a textual version of the tree, which is really good. And you can, once you see you've got form post here, and there's nothing special about this format in the slightest. So I actually find that eventually we started using this as our primary interface, just editing here, and that worked really well. The only downside is Visual Studio kept crashing because it saw you change the file and freak out the, uh, the UI. So you probably want to shut down that UI before poking at it. So um, as you can tell, it's not all roses. I, I, I haven't. I hope I haven't given the idea this is awesome. It's pretty good, but it's certainly not awesome, sadly. And um, so, is there any questions about that uh, that I've demoed so far? Uh, I have enumerated these these issues that we just I've just been showing you. It's a bit frustrating, and um, no doubt, you know, it's you get used to it, I suppose. Um, but it, it did make it a bit painful for us, and uh, I, I think overall it's been reasonable. But um, when I looked into the um, Microsoft's, you know, the blogs and whatever around this topic, there's, all, there's no chatter, there's no user voice, there's nothing. It's like this doesn't exist. All these bugs are off in the ether. So I'm definitely not saying to you this is the best, but I do think actually even after all that, it's. it's been quite useful and quite um, quite worthwhile overall. And if you're used to Microsoft software, then you're probably not that surprising, to be honest. So any questions about any of that, of, of the web test part? Good. Okay. So the second part of the, the project type is around load testing. And load testing is realistically a collection of web tests that you run Concurrently, with a variable number of users and a variable amount of delay. So you can specify I want to run it with 50 users and each user is running you know, one set of requests per 15 seconds or there's, there's a lot of settings in fact about uh, the, the number of users and the step levels and all that sort of thing. And what it does is it does some sampling to capture the request response times and uh, you get some good data out of it. In fact, the only downside to doing this is you will now know how badly your app performed under load. And, you know, most .NET apps are uh, um, not designed for performance. They're probably designed for ease of development. And uh, you'll, you'll quickly find out that most of your pages, particularly on a cold load, are really, really slow. So um, I think that's quite useful. And one of the main benefits is you can you can specify 
how how fast do you think the screen should be at the 90th percentile, for example? I think it's 90th is what we were recording at, but um, so you, you can then get some regression suite in place where after a dev has made some change, you can run through the load test and see whether things got better or worse. So as a regression suite, it's very powerful, very useful overall. So why should we load test? Well, I did say the obvious reason is for measuring performance, but specifically, it can be worthwhile just finding out what the upper limit of your application is given a particular set of hardware and a particular user profile uh, and a particular database size. So those things are going to vary quite a bit. If it's just one user in a large database, it probably work fine. If it's lots of users in a small database, it's probably fine too. But the combination together is going to give you a very different profile depending on the architecture, the concurrency models, data, data layer, and all those sorts of things. And you probably don't know where the bottlenecks are in your application until you put it out in production. And then, let's say you've got some sales cart somewhere, you don't want to find out on the busiest day of the year that your server doesn't handle the load. Uh, whereas you can find out running this pretty quickly that if a hundred customers all hit your server right now, you either can or cannot, uh, you cannot meet the mark. And uh, I think we've found that pretty interesting where the, the real issues are. And then um, the other thing you can do, which is quite important, is you can't often simulate a race condition in your own code. Half the time, you don't know they're there. And if you do know they're there, you can't emulate them. Maybe you write a test, and then it, it fails once every 100 times. You're not going to sit there waiting for that. Uh, I guarantee you, these load tests, they thrash the server in just the right way. But you're going to get these issues. Now, that doesn't mean that they're, they're going to be easy to fix at all. But, you know, if you can run this and, and churn on your server quickly, maybe you can get the right logging in or the right profiling where you can actually identify some of these race conditions, especially if they're the SQL layer and you get a deadlock or something like that. You can turn on deadlock reports. It gives you a really useful tool for saying, how does my, how does my server run under that load? And uh, importantly, it allows you to provide um, some, let's call it SLAs, but not necessarily. It gives you a, a matrix of um, a profile, is probably the right word, of how your server will perform. So when you sell it to your customer, they'll probably ask you, well, how many users can this server, can your application support? Well, you say, well, if you've got four servers and your database is this big, you think you're going to get three seconds average response times. They might not be happy with three, but at least you know they can take that to the bank. Whereas there's a good chance you probably don't know. Like if if one of your servers comes out of your web farm, what's the difference going to be in your in your response times? Does it do you know those sorts of things? Well probably not, maybe you do. Um, but this is the sort of thing will let me know that because uh, you can get yourself in a position where uh, you're measuring all that and generating the right sort of data. So one thing we did with this, which is, I think, quite an interesting strategy, was to take the database uh, from a new customer, that, that would be their migrated database on day zero, and then start projecting out the size of the database over several months and years, and finding out how the performance of that application would change over time before we get to 
than actually having that data. And that's been quite interesting as well because once you start, you can do that for one user, and the answer generally is it doesn't matter, one user, but once you start scaling up, you start to see some really interesting results. And I think that gives you the opportunity to prepare. And uh, once again, if you know where those bottlenecks are, you can actually start to flush out those issues before they become uh, DevOps problems at three in the morning. Okay, so how does it work? Um, you define a, a load test as just a set of web tests. You can pick them from your collection, and generally you pick the uh, top level ones. So I said that you can have web tests call other web tests, and you wouldn't obviously call those child ones. You would call the top level ones. You can provide a distribution. You can say, you know, most of our customers are just doing these, um, you know, browsing the, the product catalog, so that's 80%, but the other 20% is all just hitting save or something. You can sort of specify that, or you can, you know, if you've got the data from the IS logs, you can actually generate those distributions yourself, just a little bit of scripting or SQL, you can aggregate that out and actually find out, well, over a given day, the load profile looks like this, you can feed that into the system. Um, if you really want to run like a longitudinal test, you can actually send up for eight hours and have various step levels where it increases as your customer load increases and drops off again. So you've got a lot of options there. And when I show you the, the option screens in the UI, you realize there really are a lot of options. And some of the flags and settings sort of, they're, they're a little bit obscure. And we've just found that you've really just got to poke at it until uh, it works and uh, probably one of the downsides to this load testing is the docs are not exceptional, but luckily they've got a wizard, you know, in typical Microsoft style. If you just sort of answer the questions in the right way, it works pretty nicely, and that's what we do. And then um, what we've then done, since you've got these web tests, you can just define lots of scenarios, and, you know, like maybe there's a, like in our industry, we've got a grain industry, there's a harvest period where there's a certain type of transaction that's much more likely in the, the non-harvest period. And so we just write different scenarios for different uh, types times of the year, and that will obviously depend on your industry. Um, and then there's all sorts of other variations you can throw in there, which I haven't really looked at, where you can actually say, um, some of my, net, my users are on dial-up, and some of them are on the WAN, and some of them are over the internet. So you can actually get a mix whereby it actually generates some different throttling. And you can even indicate different user streams, uh, user agents in the headers. So if your server had to do different workloads, if it's a, a mobile app or a um, iPad or whatever it might be in your code base, you can actually specify a combination of agents and the ratio for that as well. So that can be quite useful if you're doing anything specific there. And uh, lastly, you can define performance counters. I really like this because not only do, do you get your own um, sampling data coming into your results set, but you can overlay that with performance counters into the same results set, and you can pick your standard uh, performance counters. So normally you just do memory and CPU and whatever else, but there's lots of performance counters in Windows, and they're all available to be sucked in here, so it's quite useful if you want to tracking number of connections to SQL or the number of threads or whatever it might be, you can bring them in here. So it's, it's very powerful. Of course, you've got to be careful because uh, you don't want to just, you know, record everything, because otherwise you won't see the data just getting entangled. But it does work quite well. So, 
I just thought I'd, I'd take a quick aside here to talk about performance, because ultimately load test is about performance. It's about, um, well, it's, it's about performance of the application, but it's also about perceived performance. The user doesn't really care how many servers you've got or, or about latency or anything. They just care about the feedback from when they click and then they get something else. So this data has come from the internet, so don't quote me on this. Um, but basically, uh, if it's it's 100 milliseconds or less, they'll feel like it's instant. So if you've got that, then you, know, you don't need me to, to tell you anything. I think you should probably come up. Um, one second, I think most people would, would agree, feels alright. You know, like it's sort of like responsive. It's doing what you want. Not really bothering you. After three seconds, uh, it's it frustrating, and there's um, reportedly 40% of visitors will abandon your site. I know Amazon's done some studies on this. And they've got actual evidence to show they can just put in the smallest delays and they can see a genuine drop off in their conversion rates. So you, this is this is not a uh, this is real money, if, especially if you're public facing. Um, so and then obviously it says here 10 seconds in the limit of your attention. Well, that's true. You're probably going to hold the tab and start reading the news or Twitter or whatever you do. So um, obviously we, we need to be thinking about performance and uh, uh, certainly that's a big part of my job actually is to look at that. So I, um, I'll, I'll talk about it later, but there's lots of things we can do to actually address the problems that a low test um, brings to bear. So I will attempt to load the load test. Now what, one thing I was going to do when I first uh, looked at this was go through something a bit elaborate, but unfortunately as I was saying before, it's it's very specific to the actual web app, and I did want to put my customer now customers a web app up here as a as an example, even though it actually does generate really good data sets. Um, so I've just used that really crappy one. So we're just going to hit the same register page over and over and over. So um, so this is the wizard, and uh, as you can see here, it's a cloud-based or on-premise. I don't know if that's Okay. Now you can see. Let me try that again. So the wizard, typical Microsoft wizard. Um, you can really just hit next, next, next here. It actually comes out pretty good. Um, so, uh, but you can also tweak all the settings. So the first thing that's really cool here is they've got an ad for Azure, which is not surprising, because you can use their their system to actually do the whole thing, to generate all the agents, to hit up the servers. I've never done that actually, but um, that's the other side of the coin here to the web test is the live test where they're actually going to farm that out and um, generate all that. But we'll just stick with on-premise. The run settings, um, what we're really talking about here is warm-up and how long to run for. So I could run for five minutes. It's not really that useful to just sit here and watch some graphs ticking across for five minutes. But you would normally put a warm-up in. Certainly, I'm, um, I haven't got one here because the server is warm already and it's only got one page or something. But um, in a real app that's got some serious bootstrapping, you don't want that to skew your data. So what we do is we hit the the home page of every module in the in the warm-up phase, and that that's sort of discarded from the result set. So uh, that doesn't take that long, but if you just put it in for a minute, um, 
and make sure those go first, then you can sort of hide that from your, your data set. And then the sampling rate, well, it says 15 seconds, but I'm going to make that five seconds because I'm not playing around this for very long. So I'll run for two minutes, five second sampling rate. Doesn't really matter too much. It can do, can do, but in this instance when I'm running it now, it's all running from the same client, and uh, what, some of the settings you've got options to is uh, to spoof your IP, client IP, otherwise it's all going to look like the same user and they'll share a session that would be very useful. But um, they do have mechanisms to make that look like you know, there's more than one browser functioning, but realistically, I showed you before that test settings file inside Visual Studio, that's about pushing out to a test controller, and then that controller farms out that work to the agents, and then those agents collaborate with each other to distribute the work. So that's all possible in this tooling. Um, you, you've got to get your ducks in a row to make that happen. It's actually much easier just to run it locally. Um, it does thrash the box a bit, especially if you've got the whole stack on your machine. And obviously, we don't have a network here. We're going to uh, we're going through the loopback, so. Clearly, if you're really serious about this, you want to set up agents and test agents and, and do it properly. But yeah, out of the box, you don't, you don't get that. So in terms of the scenario, um, it's got this notion of a think time. So what is a think time? A think time is simulating the fact that the, the person who's hitting each page has to actually read it before they do the next thing. So the time between the get and the post should be non-zero. Um, so I think you could just say think time of 15 seconds is probably fair, but um, notice how it says here, um, use normal distributions centered on recorded think times. It's doing that because when we use Fiddler to record the, the test, it actually can see how long you, you took between the get and the post, and it's, it's then generating a, a, a distribution of that and using those values. So that's normally what you want to do, but if, if you were writing it all yourself, you might have to put in a hard-coded value there. Or, um, yeah, so that's bottom there, you can just say. And then there's also between iterations, because you're going to be running this over and over, you might imagine um, you, know, you do some cycle, and then you have a pause, and you do the next one. So you've got a lot of settings here. Um, you, could, you could play with it all day. You don't get a lot of guidance from Microsoft. They do tell you what each, every setting means, but they don't tell you why you should use it and what compared to the next one. This is just like reading MSDN documentation. It's all information and no, no facts. Um, it's a bit frustrating. So then, and I think this is important, is the constant, is the user load. You can, as you can see here, you can just say, I'll just pretend we have 25 users, or you can say start at 10 and step it up every 10 seconds by 10 users and create some type of attack decay curve. Um, and up to 200, for example. So you might imagine this is a ramp up of your day, you know, as all your, your clients get on the computer or something. We don't actually bother with that. I think that if you if you just set some user level at a nominal number, you see if you're either going to make it or you're not, and then maybe you hardware to find out where the happy point is or add more hardware, you can tweak it that way. So I don't, we haven't worked with the stepping at all. And then they've got different models here around how the, how the mix occurs. The Because um, what you can say is you can say run for 10 minutes or you can say run a thousand tests, sort of up to you. And they've got all settings for all this. I won't go into it. 
What is good though is here, when you do the test mix, I can I get a UI here for adding all the existing web tests. Now, what's interesting here is these web tests are the ones that we looked at before, um, but they don't have to be. They can actually be coded UI tests as well. And I don't know if anyone's ever seen coded UI, but that's where you're actually driving the browser with uh, essentially mouse and keyboard events. Those are also web tests, and I'm completely ignoring this because I think they're clunky, but also they require an actual um, agent that's basically stealing your, your, your mouse and keyboard for the next half an hour or something. So um, we'll, for the sake of this presentation, we'll pretend it doesn't exist, but you can do that if you had an army of uh, virtual machines and you put actual agents there driving the browser, then you can actually get the full cycle of the tests as well. Um, mind you, there's problems with that because uh, that technology requires the window to be visible in the VM, even if the window is one pixel by one pixel, it can't be minimized, it can't be the back, I don't know why. It's probably got to do with com. So here you can see we've got six tests, so it's given a distribution evenly between them, but you can choose. You say it's 80% this and 5% that, it's up to you to just uh, put some numbers in there. Obviously for, for this it doesn't matter too much. Now. The problem with this is that this blank one doesn't do anything, so I'm going to move that off, and it's just going to scale the rest. And we may, you may recall that the um, context parameters is broken because it didn't fix the anti-forgery, so I'll just make that a bit less. But you know, you can you can play play with that. And obviously, you should use real data. Like I said, uh, aggregating your IS logs is probably the best way to do it. Network mix. I had mentioned this before. We're just going to do all. LAN users, but you do have a lot of options there, and all that's doing is throttling the network response um, so that those parts of the, the request response are part of the measurement. We're not going to do any of that. And then browser mix is similar. You can send some different user agents. I, I've never written an application that really cared about that, but maybe you do. Maybe you've got custom views or something based on the user, so that, that's certainly an option. And the last one is the counter sets. I mentioned, I mentioned this before, you can just add in a computer. Just put in my work machine, set up some counters. There we go. Another one. So, there you go. And uh, finish. So, I don't think you'd want to be doing that manually, but I'd, let me just show you this. If I select this load test and bring up the properties dialog, pretty much everything here, and so you don't really need to look at it too much, but you can see all the options down the side there. Every one of these nodes is like that, and uh, it can be a bit daunting when you're starting off to think, well, which ones do you change? That's why I always go back to the, I'm almost done, Dave, thank you. I always go back to the wizard to tweak it. I think it's better. So now I'm just going to run this guy. And this doesn't... Oh, there you go. Yeah, no, it's good, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I blame you, Dave. You haven't talked to me in a long time. But... That's outrageous.
We're almost done anyway. So uh, the only thing I was going to show you is the charts. I think this part of it looks pretty good. Gonna, um, what you're going to see is not only do the charts interact in a, in a online fashion, they're all moving as the load test is running, but you can um, you can add and remove counters dynamically. It's quite interesting as you why. I think it's one of the best parts of this. If you imagine running this for a few hours, you don't want to just wait to the end and see that 80% of it was above the threshold. You could see that straight away and maybe you can stop and start tweaking it. I think that's quite powerful. So I will restart the web test. Yes, it is. No, it doesn't. Actually, it's been pretty good. In terms of the reliability of the runtime, yeah, it's fine. But yeah, this that UI thing is pretty annoying. Okay. Um, okay, I won't show you that. That's uh, a bit frustrating. that I just created, I don't know why. Um, I'll just run load test one. Okay, so I, I know you're expecting more from the UI than just that, but if we will kick in, here it comes. So this I like, I've, I've actually sat there and watched it for more than a few minutes at a time before. You really do, um, you, you do get a feel for the, your application, especially um, after your warm up time. So uh, here it goes. So this one, I think I did change the sampling, so it's still every 15 seconds, so you have to just you know, wait. But um, the data does start coming in, and I think it's pretty good. And uh, you know, you can come over to over to here and pull in, uh, you know, all these uh, performance counters and all these other counters can be dragged in. So I can say so I really am interested in this value. Just drop that in there, and you know. There it is now, and then you can um, so start to see it. I mean, th this is not the most interesting test, but you can see here, even in this example here, the first test was slow. I have no warm-up time here, so the first test obviously took a minute to run. That was my warm-up time, and then subsequently we're down to uh, 10 so seconds, and uh, there we go. So over time. That actually comes up pretty well, and if you had a really good distribution, you'll really see your server doing a lot of work at this stage. So we actually send this off. This uh, we don't run this on our dev boxes when we're testing the actual server, because you can, as I said, you can run that web test exe and uh, do it all on the box, and uh, it works quite well. So I'll. Um, it does have one annoying feature though, and that is if I hit stop on this till now some of the output won't be available. It's like it only collates and if it finishes correctly. And I don't really see the point of that, because if you get an error here, sometimes it says at the top here, I've got two errors. If I drill into that, these errors here, um, there you go, there's some, well, they're, they're not very interesting errors anyway, but uh, the performance count is not being available. But sometimes you get actual errors in your code, and you'll want to see what that error is and what web test caused it. Those links will not be available until the load test completes successfully. I don't know why. This is just bizarre and it's quite frustrating. So 
even if I saw a horrible error, I have to wait another two and a half minutes before I can find out how that error back. Once again, used to leave things that just ruin it personally. So uh, I'll, I'll, I won't make you stare at that. So um, I'll just come back to the final slides. There's not many left. Don't panic. Um, okay, so look, I, there are plenty of issues. I've just shown the most of them to you. But one thing I want to cover, which isn't the UI, is the concept of data-driven testing is actually quite difficult because you've got to make some strategic decisions about where the data comes from. Are you going to generate it on demand? Are you going to take a snapshot of a, of a test database or a customer database? Are you going to have an empty database and then build up scripts before running? You've got to have a plan for this. It's, it's not going to work just giving it a CSV because obviously the next time you run it, all those natural keys are going to be used. And you're going to have all sorts of problems. You, you've got to either have a, um, a plugin that can restore the database to a known state, or you've got to generate data and then just work off of, uh, uh, maybe you want to pick the first item out of the drop down or something every time. You know, you, you've really got to think about that. And we, we've, we've done it at um, ECHA around um, generating data. So um, that way the data is really quite um, distributed. It's not, it, so we've tried to emulate the customer's scenarios, but ultimately um, it meant that a lot of our a lot of our plugins are trying to find the right record that matches another record so that the business rules are met. And a lot of that you can feed through the CSVs. The CSVs have to work with the generated data. There's a lot of problems there. So I wish I had some good strategies here for you, but I think that if I if I could have my time again, I probably would have a curated database and I would run all the tests off of that and then at the end we'll just restore that to the the pristine version again because then all your tests are statically based off of curated data. Um, even with that in mind, you still have to deal with um, uh, you still have to deal with concurrency and the fact that when you're actually thrashing the server out, sometimes you will have deadlocks and you'll have failed tests, and therefore you can't depend on the data you just created for the next test. So you've got a lot of problems that you have to think about. So it's really a good idea if every web test is independent of every other part of the system. So that's that's a good tip. And um, you you really want to be thinking about that from the beginning because if you just assume that web test all did run and it saved three orders, so now I can go to the order screen and you know, select one, it's not going to work. Okay. Um, yeah, so we, we have addressed all those issues. I don't think they're... they're uh, deal breakers, but they, they certainly don't, you don't want to dismiss that because if you get to that point where you start to rely on this and then the tests fail, not because the, your product doesn't work, but because your input data is a little bit brittle, it can be quite uh, frustrating. So, uh, look, this is not a performance resolution talk, so I'm not going to go into any of these things, but I thought I'd just put it in here because I spent a lot of my time doing this. The, the issues we find can always be solved with profile, and that's what I've found. So, um, if you use a CLR profiler, any .NET profile will do, or a SQL profiler, I think generally you find what the causes are. And from my perspective, I like logging. I, I like to turn on logging in certain areas that keep on crashing. So I don't know if you use logging yourself, but if you have selective logging around around the hotspots in your code base, you can find interleaved methods, areas where there's contention, 
and you can start uh, creating strategies around that. Um, and I'll put this in about length because the number of times I've been able to fix catastrophic performance problems by just reviewing the way the link queries are, are constructed, fetching is uh, and or fetching in um, in Hibernate or including in uh, entity framework just make a huge difference. If you're going to grab a parent and his child at the same time or a foreign key, many to one, you, you get a lot of advantage from that. So you really have to think when you're executing this query, what uh, lazily loaded properties are going to occur afterwards and sort of try and prepare all that in advance. Uh, that's, for, for us, it's been a really large cause of the easy pickings when it comes to performance. It doesn't take much actually to fix those. And then as part of that, sometimes you just can't get a good RRM query. At the end of the day, it's just going to write some rubbish. Uh, I recommend isolating those into a view or possibly a store procedure and then uh, dealing with that directly in the SQL layer. Those things made a big difference. And lastly, um, caching. Uh, we, we found that the caching strategies were fundamental to good performance. Webs, uh, the MVC has built-in output caching. This is quite useful, especially if you do donut caching, which is for like a partial cache of your output. Uh, also, caching lookup tables or any sort of data that doesn't change regularly. All the obvious things there, they make a huge difference when you talk about load. They don't really make any difference when you talk about an individual web test or you know um, a series of them. But when you're talking about all these users doing the same thing, you don't want to be all get in line to go back to the database because you end up serializing a lot of your access there. And lastly, and this is difficult, but you've got to remove the waste in the execution itself. A lot of the time, you'll see code that queries this and queries that and says, oh, and if some scenario is true, then just return and didn't need to do their work in the first place. And I think those are really easy things to identify in code reviews, so I'll definitely advocate for um, reviewing the, the waste in your code. So if you do all those things, I think um, the bulk of the performance problems go away, especially the SQL layer. I think that's where a lot of these things go badly. Lastly, Microsoft's not the only one who builds half-assed software. I'm sure you'll find plenty of open source software that fails strangely as well. Um, I looked into these, and it turns out they're all pretty much the same as the MS, MS test one. Um, Actually, the Locust UI one looks really good, and the JMeter is well regarded in the Java space. So um, you don't have to, you know, stick with Microsoft. Of course, it's really just hitting your your, your servers anyway. So there's heaps of alternatives. Um, some have strange names like Multi Mechanize. I don't know why. But, um, I think ultimately you'd be picking them based on your tool chain, like. What's good about the Microsoft one is it's all C-sharp, you can write plugins, extractions, etc. You're probably comfortable there. Um, you know, the JMeter, you'd be writing Java, uh, etc. So that's the talk. There's some links here at the end. I'll put this up. I'll uh, make it available on Meetup so that you can uh, have a look. Um, any questions about load testing? Nothing at all. There you go, Dave. One hour. Thank you, Ben. So the uh, pizzas are due, so just uh, talk amongst yourselves. The pizza will come out. Uh, just, uh, there's uh, 
gluten-free, there's vegetarian, and there's other various combinations. So uh, I'll probably get put on the tables, but most of you know the drill. You just go and find the one you like to look at. I'm <laughs> <laughs>